Father in heaven, thank you for this good day. Thank you for another day to live. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross for our sins, for giving us the opportunity to come and worship you, but also giving us the opportunity to wrestle with you and to struggle and to figure this out with you and not be rejected. Holy Spirit, I ask that as we wrestle through things tonight and as we talk and as we engage one another and eat food together, that you would be present both in us in working out our salvation and convicting us and pointing us in the right direction and that you would be on us in a way that would bring kindness and gentleness and humility to our conversations and to the way that we interact and care for each other. I ask that all in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. So, um, next week we are starting a brand new series on James. And so we will be in James until close to the Christmas season, and then we will do Advent together. Um, But today, well actually last week, I was supposed to begin a two-week series on gender, marriage, and singleness. Um, But because I was in the hospital, um, I called Rod to see if he would fill in for me. And he didn't want to introduce a series on gender and singleness and, like, with six hours' notice. Um, So (laughs) I had to revamp all of that and um, put two sermons into one sermon, which can be relatively difficult, but I'm going to give it a shot. So here's my disclaimer, and that is that I probably will not address anything that you want me to address, and I will not say anything that you want me to say. And I unfortunately last week said, hey, I'm going to do a sermon on marriage and singleness and gender, and none of you will be offended. Um, I hope that that's true. So let me start out, though, with a story about me. Um, When I was a freshman in high school, my family had moved from North Carolina to Tucson. And the odd thing about that move was that my parents moved into the apartment complex that I was born in. So they did this complete 360 in their life. They were starting over. Um, And so the complex that my parents lived in when they were early married and they had their child, their first child, was the complex that we were now living in my freshman year of high school. And... um, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a lot of friends. And so high, and high school was a little bit of a terrifying thing because for some reason, some kid told me that at Rincon, where I went to high school, um, that all freshmen got stuck in garbage cans and rolled down the hill. Like, so I, this, I was watching out not to walk by any garbage cans because I didn't want to get stuck in them um, and get rolled down the hill. I was like terrified of this. Um, but... My next door neighbor, his name was Ian, and he was also a freshman. His dad was a traveling, um, well not traveling, he was a visiting professor of geology at the U of A, and so they were here for a year. And we had PE together, and he was my next door neighbor. And so we hung out a lot. In fact, at the time I was playing basketball, and so believe it or not, I was in really good shape, and Ian loved to run, and he was on the track team, so he would just knock on my door and say, hey, let's go run to Park Mall, and I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea, which now sounds horrible. 
Um, but we ran everywhere. We played board games every Friday night. We were inseparable in a lot of ways. And as the um, year went on, I knew that Ian was leaving, and he was one of my, well, he was my best friend, and he opened a lot of doors to other friendships. And what I found to be really interesting as a freshman um, was, as I was reflecting on, on my relationship with him in a way, as I was thinking about him, I began to realize that my feelings towards Ian were a lot more than this is a best friend. In fact, as I, as the, him leaving got closer and closer, the, my sense of longing for more intimacy with him that was beyond what a friendship was, like just guy friendship, began to kind of disrupt me and disturb me. And I was struggling with that as, you know, a 15-year-old. And he left, um, and that relationship has stuck with me all my life. And that longing and that attraction has been part of my narrative and my story as a man. Now, I tell you this story for one reason. As I begin to talk about what gender is, as I talk about anything about male and female, as I talk about any of these ideas, I want you to understand something clearly. I understand, at least in my own story, what it is to live in a broken world, internally where I don't always understand why things are the way they are, even sexually for me. And I would be happy to talk about that story even more with you. But I want you to understand that I understand a little bit of this struggle. And we all have different stories when it comes to our sexuality, how we understand male and female, all these kinds of ideas that we have to live in and are wrestling with. And so tonight, to start this conversation, I have to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And I know that if, for those of you who've been around a while, you might think, and I say this a lot, that all of my sermons come from this verse. But it is key in understanding who we are. And so let me begin by reading chapter 1, verse 27. This is God creating humanity. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I want to to stop right there and say, where we're going to start tonight is with the idea that when God created humans, in creating them in his image, he created them male and female. And so to bear God's image, we either are male or we are female, and God gives that to us. Okay? Now, on top of this image bearing of male and female, we're given two jobs. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so, not only we're male and female, but we're given a job. And I'll try to talk fast, because it's it's warm in here. But we're given these jobs. One is to make more image bearers, which is where we get marriage. Male, female, 
producing image bearers. That's what we're supposed to do. Make lots and lots of image bearers to go out and subdue the earth and rule it and make an announcement to who God is. But when you bear somebody's image, what's being talked about here is a reflection. And the important thing you have to see here is that at this moment in history, this moment of creation, the people, the person that Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, are looking at is God. They're not looking anywhere else. So the image that they're reflecting is God. And that is what they're called to do. So originally, male and female reflecting God's image as they look at God. But the story kind of moves along. And in in Genesis chapter 3, Eve, the woman, begins to interact with a serpent. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God puts a tree in the garden, says don't eat of this, and this dialogue happens. And so what happens in this moment is that the serpent gives humanity an opportunity to stop looking at God and reflecting God and begin to reflect themselves. And so in some ways what's happened is now the opportunity that's placed before Eve is this opportunity to look at herself in the mirror and reflect herself. And to look in the mirror that the enemy, the serpent, has given her and reflect the serpent. Okay? And the process we know what happens here is that God comes, he interacts with he interacts with Adam and Eve and they're pushed out of the garden and shame enters in and brokenness enters in. Now, what's happened though in our culture, <laughs> Bentley has escaped. Uh, <laughs> what's happened in our, in our culture and in particular in our culture because for most of world history, for most of world history, society has accepted, even in our brokenness, that male and female is a noun. And that the way we act out on our sexuality is a verb. Okay? How we engage one another sexually is a verb. Okay? But Freud came along. So not very long ago. Freud came along and changed all that for us. And that he said, the way that you and I interact in intimacy, in physical intimacy, the way we interact is a personhood, is a noun. Okay? And I want to... And so what's happened is, if you could imagine, you take a piece of gum, and that piece of gum represents, like, who we are in our soul and you pull that gum apart, you get this long string. 
And that's who we've kind of become, these two parts, that when you try to put the gum back together, you cannot put it back together unless you gather up all of the string. Let me illustrate the importance of this by reading a, a letter from John, the um, Third John, which I realized a few weeks ago, I haven't read Third John very much. Third John is not a letter I think, hey, I'm going to read today. I'll read Third John. Seems like a good thing. But it's just this little tiny letter at the end of the New Testament. And in the beginning, it says some interesting things that I just want to kind of talk about in context of who we are as male and female and where our sexuality is. But, so it says this, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. So John is talking about to Gaius about how his soul is doing well and he's hoping that his body is doing well. Well, a lot of what we've done is that somehow you and I believe that our soul is who we are and this physical body isn't. But our physical body and everything in it is an extension of our soul. Think about it this way. Um, if we got rid of depression and obesity in our culture, 80% of our medical bill as a country would go away, right? Well, you know what that says? That says that there is a connection to our well-being and our physicalness, right? That these things are linked, but we don't have them linked. So, here's what I want you to think about. As a male and as a female, you reflect God's image. But when we were cast out of the garden, there's something called original sin. And original sin broke us. There is a brokenness about us. And the, one of the places that it plays itself out over and over and over again is in our sexuality. Okay? And so what we've done as people has tried to find our identity in that instead of in our gender. But as a church, we've kind of missed something. As a church, we've, what we have done as a community, fighter community, even in this community, is what we've said is that the answer to everything is marriage. Right? You should get married. In fact, I started digging through some statistics, and the average age in America to get married as a male is 29. So if you came under that, congratulations. Um, the average age for a woman is 27. But if you begin to talk about church people, people who follow Jesus, and this is how statisticians deal with categorizing you. If you attend church at least three times a month, the average age of married, a person gets married, a girl, is 22. And the average age for a man is between 23 and 24. Okay? Because we as a community hold up very highly that marriage is the answer to things. You need to get married. In fact, if you're not married and you're in the community of God, you feel lonely. 
If you're single, you don't know where you belong because everybody's married and everybody has kids. And that's where they get there. And, and so that's the important thing. In fact, married people are treated as first class citizens. And yet, when you go to Galatians chapter 3, and Paul is talking right into the Galatians, he says something really interesting about who we are. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26, he says this, You are all sons of God, or daughters of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Did you hear what's being said there? That when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and you and I embraced that, and were baptized with him in his death and his life, your identity is in Christ. So there are three things that he lists out here. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, meaning your identity by your race is secondary to being in Christ. Your identity as male and female is secondary to being in Christ. Your social status, free or slave, is secondary to being in Christ. And so what he's saying is all of these other identities that you and I claim all come out of and are given perspective by Christ. And so when we begin to think about who we are and what's important, we have to start at this place, is that you and I are in Christ. So I begin to understand being male or female, not in the context of where my attraction lay. I begin to understand that in the context of being in Christ, having died with Christ and having been risen with Christ. So that kind of gives me this filter on how I need to think about things. Now, as I've been processing all of this, I began to, and, and I'm sorry, I have like 17 sermons packed in here, but, but I began to process eunuchs. Because here's the thing, in, in our culture, and in, in reality through history, yes, many of us find it very easy to identify as male or as female. But a lot of us find ourselves outside of the bell curve. And, and so we find ourselves either wrestling with our attraction or wrestling with just being single, but we find ourselves on the outside of the community of God. And as I was just actually reading through the whole book of Isaiah recently, um, I landed on Isaiah chapter 56. And I landed on, uh, on this thing about eunuchs. And so I get really, when I get really crazy, like I, I began to study eunuchs. So I'm an expert on eunuchs. So if you want to talk about eunuchs through history, I think I can actually talk to you about eunuchs through history. But this little passage talks about eunuchs, and God is talking through Isaiah about them, and it says in chapter, so chapter 56, starting in verse 4, it says, For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs 
who keep my Sabbath, who choose what, what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and in its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Now, now this is super important because if you're a eunuch, you're most likely a male and you have been castrated. Okay? And so often your job is to take care of harems. But if you're in that condition and you're Jewish, then you're not allowed to worship with anybody. You're, you're cut off from everybody. There's something different about you. But even as you process this, eunuchs didn't, through you know, kind of ancient history, didn't also refer to something, you know, being castrated. It also referred to just people who could not find themselves in the culture to want to be married and be part of that. They, they felt like they couldn't belong in it. And so they were also considered to be eunuchs. And they were cut off. And so what God is saying through Isaiah is that if these people who find themselves in this burden are willing to obey and keep the Sabbath, that God actually has a special place for them that goes way beyond the sons and the daughters, the men and the women, like the people who aren't in that place with that burden. Now, I say all of that because I want to be a community that is open, not, not open in the sense of walking with one another in our place of brokenness, open in the sense of walking um, in our singleness. And if, look, we, we were a single church. Now look around us. We are no longer a single church unless you consider all of the children. There's like 50 of them when everybody's here. Um, they're all single, and that's the singles ministry. But... Um, but, but we're, many of us got married. And the thing that we said is that the community of God has not given a place for people who are single and who are wrestling with their identity sexually and their gender. We haven't been a place for that. But I want to be a place for that. And to do that, we have to then choose our identity, not as married people, not the race that we have, not the social status we have, but that we're all in Christ and that our conversation can be around that. Now, let me just quickly tell you a story and I'll move along. Um, When Jesus faced some Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, they thought they could give him a trick question. So they, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they're like, okay, so here's the problem, Jesus. Uh, This woman has this husband and he dies and so the brother is supposed to marry her so she marries him and eventually this woman marries like seven of the brothers until all the brothers are dead which the brothers were all poisoned and that's why that happened um they should have figured it out hey we're not marrying you because if we get married you're going to die and so they're like well when she resurrects from the dead like who's she married to and jesus is like are you ridiculous like have you not read scripture um People are not, people when they're resurrected be like angels and that they don't need to procreate because we are not creating more image bearers. Right? We're not creating more image bearers anymore when we're resurrected. And so we're like angels. So we're not given in marriage. 
There isn't marriage in the kingdom of God. That's very important because we have to understand as a community and as the kingdom of God, marriage is a secondary status, not a primary status. It's not the thing that we hold up to say, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to get married. You need to have babies. You need to do this thing. That's not where you get your identity. And I, I, want, I want to hold on to that um, as we think about that. Now, let me just shift gears here a little bit and say all of what I said, I would love you to engage me on and ask me a ton more questions. Now, let me just shift here a little bit and talk about how you and I function in relationship. Um, so, when we function as men and women in marriage and in relationship, and I'll, I'll talk mostly about marriage here, but as we interact with each other as male and female, we do distinctly reflect God, and in, in it's very distinct. It's different. The problem is, is that in society and in cultures, we've tried to ascribe, well, this is what men do, and this is what women do. And certainly Scripture talks about these things. But as we wrestle with issues in relationship, both with our friends and in particular in marriage, there are two things that underlie every single problem. And I can guarantee you that when you have a problem with a friend or you have a problem with your spouse, this is where it lies. Number one, inside all of us, we have this longing, and that longing is to be loved and accepted. Okay? All of us want to be loved and accepted. It's part of reflecting God's image. It's a longing and a need inside of us. The second thing is that all of us long to have a lasting impact on the person that we care for and the people that we're in friendship with. Right? We want to be loved and accepted and we want to have a lasting impact on someone. And so in every single difficulty that you face in relationship with your husband, wife, or friends, from finances to sex to what you're going to eat tonight to food, you know, what foods, what side of the bed you're sleeping on, who changes the oil, all these kinds of things. The underlying all those things, when there's brokenness, when there's argument, it always comes down to, in this situation, I do not feel loved and accepted. Or I do not feel like I can have an impact on this person. Those two things rule everything. The problem is, is that you and I get, thing, get mixed up in thinking what I need is a step-by-step way of fixing things. Right? I, need to, I need to figure out how to fix this. If we can just figure out step one, two, and three, then I can fix it. Or some of us are like, you know what, if there's just this one problem, if I were to fix this one problem in my relationship, then everything would work. Or we're just like, hey, happiness would work best, so I, don't, I just don't want to disrupt the boat. These kinds of things kind of distract us from actually dealing with feeling loved and accepted and having impact. And I would argue that being male and female we look at these ideas of impact and being loved and accepted differently. And we can talk about that. 
We deal with them differently. But I guarantee you, the next time you get in an argument, the next time you get in a fight, the next time you feel alone in your relationship, it has to do with the fact that you don't feel loved and accepted and you don't feel like you have an impact. Now, let's, let's jump back to John, or third John. So John has told this guy that he hopes that his soul is as well, his body is as well as his soul. And in verse 3 he says, It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So, the thing that really gets this guy excited, John excited, is that Gaius is walking in the truth. Now, you can't walk with a set of ideas. They don't walk very well. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so what John is saying to Gaius is, it's incredible to me to see that you're walking with Jesus, and people are experiencing that. So here's the thing. When you experience this lack of love and acceptance or impact, the thing that you go to is manipulation. Okay? The thing that you and I do in all of our relationships with our children, with our spouses, with our friends, is when we don't feel loved and accepted, when we don't have impact, we begin to manipulate things to get those. Right? We begin to do whatever we can to make it work for us. And what that is, is if you go back to Eve looking at the mirror, we're all looking at ourselves, trying to make this work, trying to figure it out. Okay? The only way that you and I can step into a relationship and feel loved and accepted and have impact is if we're willing to walk with the truth. Meaning, if we're willing to walk with Jesus. The way that my wife is actually going to experience a sense of love for me and, and a sense that she has an impact in me is only if I'm willing to walk with Jesus and minister to her instead of manipulate her. Now this is how that works. And this is important because it, it works not just in our relationships, but it works as we interact as men and women in this community. The way that you and I walk with Jesus, the Puritans say, anyway, is through repentance. That the threshold to the throne room of God, the threshold to walking with God, is through repentance. And, and so here's, here's how that works. And I'll just... Because I, when you think about your relationship with your husband or your wife, it's you think about who you are as a man and a woman. And as you understand kind of how your sexuality has been stretched out like a bubble gum and it's, it's, it's not connected to your soul. And I know we all struggle. I talk to you guys. I know and I hear about the struggles that you have. I know where we're at. It's stretched out. We're disconnected from our souls. As you wrestle with those things, the Puritans say that there are kind of three ways of understanding our sin and walking into repentance. Number one is that understanding that original sin distorts us. And this is an important thing to understand. Original sin, the sin of Adam, a theologian would say, 
distorts us. That means that the parts of me, that I, the story I told you, the brokenness in my own sexuality comes from the burden of original sin. I did not choose it. The brokenness of our... our but it's not just my sexuality. It's the fact that I have a learning disability. I didn't choose that. You guys can... I, there are so many things we didn't choose, but they are on us, and we weigh, and they weigh on us. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing, is that Jesus says that he will bear our burdens. He will bear our burdens. But the burden of original sin is not one that often is lifted. It's one that he carries with us. In church, what we tend to do is lean on each other's burdens, particularly on original sin, particularly on the things that, that we don't have like the ability, we didn't choose the things that we're wrestling with. But the Puritans say original sin, it distorts us. We have to understand that what we're experiencing is a distortion of the way it's supposed to be. The Puritans say that actual sin is a distraction. And so we have to be able to identify what is distracting us. So when we enter into relationship, husband and wife, when we enter into relationship with friends, we have to realize the sins that distract us. We have to be willing to say them out loud. We have to be willing to engage with them. Understand how they impact us. But where repentance really comes in, and this is where you and I are able to walk with God, is in what a Puritan would say is indwelling sin. The sin that you and I have taken in and we have treasured and we have fostered. And out of those sins, that is where the manipulation happens in our relationship with one another. The things that you and I have taken in and we care for. And, we, and you know what happens? That sin manipulates us. It controls us. It speaks to us. And so the way that you and I deal with this in relationship is through repentance. And repenting happens by identifying. So if you want to step into your relationship with your husband or your wife, with your friends, in a way that they're going to experience, they're going to experience a sense of love from you, they're going to experience a sense that they can impact you, is your willingness to put out there what your sin is. To repent of it. Part of repenting is a confession or an announcing it or a putting it out there. Right? Now, the Gospel of John says that something happens when, when we obey the commands of God and we love God. The Holy Spirit brings the Father and the Son to be with us. So when you begin to name out loud your indwelling sin, the Holy Spirit begins to transform you. So, let me conclude with this way. Let me tell you a story, and then I'll conclude. Um, what I want to say is that as a community at the village, and as Christians, the thing that we point to is that God created male and female in his image. And that, in the garden, that picture is the way it's supposed to be. That is the way it was supposed to be. But the reality is that you and I have been stretched. 
And that in the church, the thing that's redemptive is the fact that our identity no longer rests in male and female, Jew or Gentile, right? Slave or free. It rests in being in Christ, in the gospel, in that redemptive process. And the way that you and I can enter into relationship is through repentance, really being willing to identify our sin. But what happens as we confess our sin is that Jesus meets us in a special way, and when he meets us in a special way, we have something special to say to one another. Because each one of our burdens and each one of our journey is different. So let me tell you the story to illustrate that point, and then I'll close. Um, I don't even know if it's a true story, but there was a, a, a duke, a wealthy ruler, landowner, and he wanted to do something lasting. And so what he did was he built a church in the middle of a town. Um, it was a big and it was a beautiful church, and it was for the whole town to come and worship God. And so at the inaugural service, everybody shows up to, the, to this service, and there are all of these empty lampstands. And so people start saying, why are all these empty lampstands there? What's going on? Like, how are we going to light this place? And the Duke says, look, I'm going to give each one of you a lamp. And I want you to take the lamp home. And I want you to know that the little hook, you have your own hook for your, your lamp, and you're going to light this building. So when you all come, the building will be lit up, and when you're absent, there will be an element of darkness in that place. Now, you could interpret that story in some sense of, well, everybody, it's a manipulation to get everybody to go to church because you need to have the church lit up and, and you know, we want to miss your presence. And, but no. The way I hear that story and what it means to me is that as I walk in my journey as a man and begin to understand what that means to be a man, to love with my wife, engaged in confession and repentance, the story of how Jesus meets me is that light. It is what I bring every single Sunday. It is what I bring when I come together in community. So here's my encouragement. As we as a community wrestle in a world where gender is being stretched out and it's fluid, where we're wrestling with what it even means to be a man or a woman, what, what it means to operate in marriage and all the things of this ancient faith that we have and how to interpret that, I would argue that more important than understanding, coming up with answers, more important is your story. And more important than even your story is how Jesus has met you when you've been willing to say, this is where I've been distorted. This is where I've been distracted. And these are the things that I nurture. And as you've confessed them, this is what Jesus did. It makes it so much more powerful when we come together and do that than if we hold those things hidden and are unwilling to talk about it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this community and thank you for them being willing to walk with me and um, listen to multiple sermons in one. Um, but thank you for their grace. And God, I ask as we sit around and eat black bean burgers and smoked beef and lots of good food, um, that you would give us the intention 
to tell our stories and to speak um, the places that you're calling us uh, to, to confess our sin and to repent. Um, I ask for that grace in your name, Jesus. Amen.